Thanks, Catherine and Lacey. Beautiful song. Great duet. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Just want to say thanks for allowing me to be gone last weekend. I was in Georgia preaching at a youth camp on uh, drawing near to God through the Psalms. And we had about 150 kids there or so. And I had a couple of uh, nieces and nephews at the camp. And it was just a real honor, real delight to be there. And I'm happy to be back with you this morning. I just wanted to say thanks to Alex Maurice, who preached in my uh, place last week from, uh, from uh, Levit- Leviticus chapter 16. I was able to listen to the message online. And he did such a, a great, convicting, encouraging job. And I would encourage anybody, if you missed last week, make sure you maybe go back and hear uh, the message from from, uh, a week ago. So what we're doing now is we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And so we've been in the Gospel of John for almost six months now, and we uh, hit our first message of the year in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is really the story of turning the water into wine. So this is our second message from chapter 2. Been away for a couple of weeks, but we'll be back in this text today. And uh, and this is the, the, the sermon about Jesus cleansing the temple. And so I've given the title to the sermon, It's Time to Clean House, because that's what it's time to do today, right? It's time to clean house in our hearts and our lives as we examine what Jesus did in the temple. So I just want to encourage you as we read this text and jump in, don't be thinking that this is something that Jews need to hear. Don't be thinking this is something that those people who messed up the temple really needed to get it from Jesus. I want you to be thinking this morning, you know, this is something I need to hear. This is something that God wants to speak to me on this day in 2017 because it's time in my life and maybe even in our church, it's time to clean house. So I want you to think of it in that way as we dive in together this morning. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, or excuse me, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered What is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a familiar text. Pray that you would shine new light on your word as you teach us from the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer what this text is saying so that we can grab hold of it, not only historically, but practically today in our own hearts and in our own lives, that it would bring change. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I think most of you know that we're living in a Reformation year, the year of the Reformation, 500 years ago. We're talking about October the 31st, 1517, is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, to catapult the Protestant Reformation. And it was really the, the beginning of, of, of some of our historical and uh, doctrinal roots uh, go back ultimately to the Bible, but it was Martin Luther who in so many ways brought many of those things back into focus. And of course, initially, his noble attempt was at a God-honoring reformation. Uh, Luther wanted the Pope of Roman Catholicism to take an honest look at the established religion of Rome and to acknowledge their sin of committing the act of legality, of uh, basically saying you can be saved by keeping these extra things that were added to Scripture, also by the abuse of the selling of indulgences, saying that if you give so much money to help support the basilica, St. Peter's Basilica being uh, built in Rome, then somehow that's going to give you, you know, brownie points with God, and you'll spend less time in purgatory. And so Martin Luther was attacking this system, and his goal was really to bring about reform. And he wanted to bring about reform by focusing on the doctrine of justification, that people are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through the, uh, through the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, right? The five solas of the Reformation. And when the Roman Catholic Church refused to listen to Luther, he had no other choice but to begin to clean house. 
And so instead of taking on just uh, the idea of reforming, he began to bring about such radical change that it kind of felt like a church split altogether. And he began to use his pulpit and his time as a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg to bring about a fortitude of, of strength and doctrinal purity. And he used his pulpit, he used his teaching to bring about change in, in his town and in his country, and eventually it, it spread to the entire world of Christendom. Cleaning house is an idiom that means to wipe out corruption or inefficiency. It means to eliminate or discard whatever is undesirable. Cleaning house means to get rid of that which does not belong there. It's the idea of getting rid of bad stuff and replacing it with good stuff, right? Replacing it with the integrity of the Bible and the integrity of preaching the gospel and to see true light and change come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether it be one of the reformers like Martin Luther of the 15 or 1600s or whether it be a reformer of the present day, Maybe some of you are familiar with Dr. Robert Al Mohler, who reformed Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, that when he became the professor of that seminary, he had to let go of over half the faculty who had liberal views of even the inerrancy of Scripture. Or maybe some of you are familiar with even Dr. John MacArthur, who in 1986, when he came to Los Angeles Bible College here next door, had to clean house. And he tells a lot of stories about how he had to walk in different offices and say, hey, pack your bags, you're done here, mainly because some professors wouldn't sign the doctrinal statement, which is a, a claim to believe the gospel. And so wh whether you're thinking about something from church history or something of more modern history or just maybe some pastor you know who's, who's planted a church or maybe who's come into a church to do a revitalization, I, I think that all of us just kind of love that idea of reform. Yeah, it's time to clean house. There's a little rebel in all of us that we're like, yeah, I like those stories. Don't you like those stories? I like those stories, all right? And I think my favorite maybe from the Old Testament would be from 2 Kings chapter 22. It's the story of Josiah. You probably remember there were a few bad kings in the time of, of the Judean kingdom, and, uh, and basically they had forgotten the Lord, and they have forgotten to spend time in the, in the Bible, and they have forgotten what Deuteronomy 17 said, which is basically when a new king became king, he was to write out the Bible so as not to forget it. Remember that? He was supposed to take the law of God, and his first act as king was to, to write it out. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 7, 18, 17, 18 by Moses. It says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of of this law. So his job, first act as king, was to write out the Bible. I, mean, I was thinking, how cool would that be when I was watching part of the inauguration of President Trump? And then I saw in the afternoon, he was like in the Oval Office writing out these executive orders and signing them and just sending them off, you know, all the things he's going to do on his first day in office. And I was like, how cool would it be if he just stopped and said, you know, what? I'm going to take a, a day, I'm going to take a week, I'm going to take a month, and I'm just going to copy the Bible by hand because I want to live out the Word of God. I want to be a faithful president who would remember the Word of God. And I just thought, how cool would that be? And of course, at this time in history, they were operating under a theocracy where the king was really subject to the Bible as a, a, a form of government. And today we have a democracy. So I understand there's a few differences, but I just thought how we need to return to that, that passion for the Word of God, not just to be read formally at parts of the, of the inauguration and even on, on the day of prayer, the day after. But, but to be followed, not just to be written out so you could say, I, I copied the whole Bible and my hand's really hurting, you know, but, but to say, you know what, and I love God's word and I want to live it out. And what was happening at the time of Josiah was the Bible had been forgotten. In fact, it had been lost. And so when Josiah became king at age eight years old, and as he began to grow and mature, he wanted to repair the temple. And so he sent people in there to kind of clean out some clutter and to begin to, 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 to uh, do the repairs that needed to be done. And that's where we read how Hilkiah, the high priest, reported to the king that they had found the Bible. They found the book of the law that had been ignored for all these years. And so basically the king had him come and read it to him. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, 2 Kings 22:11, he tore his clothes. And so when he heard the truth being preached, he realized, you know, I've not been obeying God. And he rent his garments 
as he wanted to get right with God to lead the nation in a way it ought to be led. In fact, in, in the next couple of verses, he says, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book and do according to all that is written concerning us. And I thought, man, how, how interesting is that, 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 that this king would want to so desperately return to the Word of God. And I, I just kind of think about that as a, as a backdrop for where we are in today's sermon about cleaning the house again. It had become time again to, to clean the temple. You see, since that happened from Josiah, unfortunately, Israel didn't stick with it. After he left the kingdom, he had other good kings, other bad kings, and then God punished Israel for their disobedience and led them into exile. He had Babylon, pagan nation, come and take them into Babylon for 70 years. And it was while they were there that that, that Psalm 138 that we read earlier, 137, was talking about. But that basically, they, they finally come back to Israel and Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. And as they rebuild the temple, it wasn't quite what it was when Solomon built it the first time. But at least they had rebuilt the temple. They're reestablishing it. And then there's 400 years of silence where we didn't hear from God. And then King Herod the Great comes on the scene. And he's not really a God-fearing man. He just, he just feared Rome. And so he begins to re-embellish the temple to refurnish it to make it more beautiful, and spent something like 46 years building this this temple. Now we're in the first century, the time when Jesus was here, and, and it was all about the externals. It was all about how beautiful is the temple. Let's restore its beauty on the outside, but it was barren on the inside of true spiritual life. And this is the context of the, the setting. Then Jesus comes, and we read in the text, it's time to clean house. And I just hope that, that we would be thinking about the same thing in our life. Maybe you've been kind of through a lot uh, in your life and you've had a long journey with God and without God and close to God and far from God and loving God and, and kind of being silent in your relationship with God. And today, maybe this sermon is for you. It's time to clean house. It's time to clean house in your own heart and in your own life. It's time to clean house in your own marriage and in the relationship you have with your brothers and your sisters and, and with people in this church. It's time to clean house. And what a great text for us to look at this morning. I want to just give you five headings as we look at these verses about it being time to clean house. The first is a little bit more work on the setting. I want to talk a little bit more about the time of the cleansing, the time of the cleansing. I've kind of given you the macro context. I want to give you the micro context, and here's how I'll do that. There's five observations I want to make from verses 12 and 13, and your first blank, if you are taking notes, says this, setting up a ministry headquarters in Capernaum. Setting up a ministry headquarters in Capernaum. You see there in verse 12 where he says, after this, verse 12, after this. Well, after this is after everything that happened in verses 1 through 11, which is basically the story of Jesus turning the water into wine. Okay, so after he turned the water into wine, that's what we looked at at the first of the year, he now is moving on to set up his full-blown his full-blown ministry. And so after this, they moved to Capernaum. In fact, the text says they went down to Capernaum. That just means topographically where they were in Cana. It was a 16-mile trek to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, but it was actually going down because the Sea of Galilee is also below sea level. And so they're going down to Capernaum, and this is where Jesus is going to set up his base. This is where he'll set up his ministry. And Capernaum was a fishing village and became the hometown and the headquarters of Jesus's ministry. Mark Mark chapter 2 verse 1 describes Jesus as being at home when he was in Capernaum. The synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also reveal a number of miracles that occurred in Capernaum, including the healing of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof. Always been one of my favorite stories, right? They came to Jesus, they couldn't get in, it's too crowded, they climb up on the roof and his buddies rip apart the ceiling and lower the paralytic down right in front of Jesus so Jesus healed him. That was in Capernaum. Another story is about how Jesus uh, did an exorcism of an unclean spirit from a man in the synagogue. Peter and Andrew, two of the disciples, were from Capernaum. James and John, two other disciples, were fishing nearby when they were formally called to follow Christ as his disciples. Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector, he had his booth stationed in this town, Capernaum. Many of you maybe have been to Capernaum. If you've been to Ibex through the college or traveled to Israel with us a few years ago, we had the awesome privilege of being in Capernaum. And when you walk up, there's a big sign across the top that says, Hometown of Jesus. 
And you're able to walk in and see some of the sites, even that first century synagogue where we believe Jesus would have preached. You get to see Peter's mother-in-law's house, a fishing house right there on the north part of the sea. You get to see, you know, you get to kind of walk around on the plain and, and, and what they think might have been the Mount of, of, uh, the Mount of the Beatitudes where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's all in this vicinity. It's a beautiful area, this area of Capernaum. And so here's where Christ has gone. He's gone from Cana to Capernaum. And notice who came with him. Again, verse 12 says, his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So this leads us to our next blank. Again, I'm still building a little bit about the time of the cleansing. And here's an interesting thing I want to take notice of, revealing the condition of Jesus's family. Let me talk just a moment about the family of the Lord Jesus Christ, his relationship with his father, Joseph, is not mentioned once Christ's ministry begins. But his relationship with his mother, Mary, continues. And also his relationship with his brothers and his sisters. In fact, when verse 12 says his mother and his brothers, notice the footnote there in your Bible tells you that that word for brothers could also be translated as brothers and sisters. And so we believe that the Lord Jesus not only had brothers, but he had brothers and sisters who followed him from Cana to Capernaum. And then notice uh, that the relationship Relationship that Jesus had with them, uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 and following says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called to him, and a crowd was gathering around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So all that to say that Jesus' view view of the family was a little bit bigger than blood. While blood oftentimes is thicker than water, those who are in Christ, we ought to be seeing each other as the family, the family of the faith, the family of God. That's what Jesus taught us. And so he loved his family But remember, he also put his family in their proper place, right? Like when Mary came up and said, they have no more wine. And he says, hey, woman, what does that have to do with me? And we talked about that in our last sermon. He wasn't being rude, all right? But he was just reminding her that Jesus doesn't follow the instructions of his earthly mom. He follows the instructions of his heavenly father. He is on a mission, and he does not over-prioritize his family. Now, look, I'm a family man. I love my wife. I have five kids. They're all sitting right here in the first service, except for Zoe. She was in the nursery. But they're all sitting right here. I'm a family guy. But you know what? You're my family. You are my mother and my brother and my sisters if you're in Christ. And we've got to start sometimes seeing not only our family as family, but our extended family in the Lord as our family. That's how Jesus saw it. And it wasn't always easy. Some of his brothers doubted his true divinity. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 3, uh, we read about how basically some of the brothers are following him around. And then in John 7, verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So not all the time did his brothers believe in him. It's like the verse that says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And that verse also says, and with his own family. So a prophet uh, sometimes is not really uh, heeded by his own town and his own family. And the same thing happened to Jesus, even when he went back and preached that message in Nazareth. They didn't respect him like they should have. And then a little bit later, though, we we get an idea that his family all got converted. So that is encouraging, right? In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, after Jesus had died, uh, after he was raised again, they're waiting for uh, the Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost. And here's what we read in Acts 1, 14. All these were All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so at some point, it seems like the brothers kind of came back into the church. They kind of came back into where they really believed and became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, another interesting observation about his family on this same point is this. Uh, Jesus We know he had siblings who doubted and then later came to faith. We know that Jesus uh, considered all believers as part of the family of God. But one observation is that Jesus had a family. He had brothers and sisters. Did you know not everybody believes that? Jesus had at least half-brothers and half-sisters, for they did not have the same father, since Jesus is God uh, in the flesh, but they had the same mother, Mary. But the Roman Catholic faith holds to the perpetual virginity of Mary which is a doctrine that asserts that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was not only a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, 
but that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. And my friends, that's just simply not true. And it's not true because the Bible tells us that Jesus had brothers, and he had brothers and sisters. And so the, the idea that Mary, the Catholic Church would also say Mary was born without sin, that she was a virgin and remained a virgin the rest of her life, and all that is an effort to deify Mary as a potential co-redemptist by which you can be saved. And my friends, I'm just saying that's just not biblical. The idea is that it's all about Christ. It's Christ alone, faith alone, and Him alone. And while He had a family, let's not get too focused on His mom or His brothers or sisters. It's Christ that we look to and that we learn this important, uh, this important thing about His family. All right? Another observation I want to make is this. Moving from the wedding to the temple moving from the wedding to the temple. And all I want to say about that is basically at the wedding, we read about how they ran out of wine, right? They ran out of wine, which is also a picture of the Jewish uh, purification uh, system was broken. And that's why there were six empty water jars there. And Jesus said, fill them with water, take it to the head of the ceremony, and, uh, and then it, the water it was turned into wine. So from that, we learned that the Jewish system is empty. It's empty. It's got to have Christ in order to have the new wine. Okay, that's what we learned in the last section. In this section, what we're going to learn is the Jewish system is not only empty, it's filled with the wrong stuff. Because when you go to the temple, it's not filled with an awe and a a reverence for a holy God. It's filled with sheep and goats and animals and distraction of money launderers who are doing business in the house of God. And so the reason I think these two things are set together in the Gospel of John is to not only show that Basically, Judaism is broken. It's also filled with the wrong stuff. That's another observation about the setting of this particular text. And then one last blank here under the first heading is traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. Notice that after they were in Capernaum, just for a couple of days, it says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So just another topographical observation. It says they went up to Jerusalem. So from where they are in Capernaum, it would have been a trek up, meaning in elevation to where Jerusalem is more in a mountainous area. But they're going down there for the feast. And as you know, the feast of Passover commemorated Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. It was because of Pharaoh's stubborn rebellion against God that the death angel killed the firstborn of every Egyptian household. But He passed over the houses of the Israelites who covered their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. And you remember Moses records this for us, the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verses 23 through 27 says this, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, that would be the cross the top and the two doorposts, the Lord would pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. What service? The Passover. You're, con- you're to continue to follow the, the Passover uh, feast and tradition, which is what we're reading about. And the next verse says, hey, when your children say to you, what, what do you mean by this service? In other words, why are you putting blood over the doorpost and down the side? Or why do we have to kill a Passover lamb? And why are we having a feast about this? When they ask you, why are we doing this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt, and he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And so really this Passover is all a picture of the gospel. The truth is you and I are all sinners. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we deserve the death angel. We deserve the punishment of God forever and ever. For the Bible teaches that the wages of our sin is death. And yet through the precious blood of Christ, the true Lamb of God, that by His blood that was spilt, who covers our house, who covers your life, you can be forgiven. God's judgment passes over you, and you can enter into the promised land of salvation. And so this is the whole idea of why this would be repeated year after year after year. And did you further know that every male Jew from the age of 12 and up was expected to attend the Passover in Jerusalem? Which would have meant if Jesus began his ministry at age 30, he would have already attended this Passover feast 18 times. 
This isn't like his first time to Jerusalem to to check out the Passover and, and to cleanse the temple. He knew the temple was dirty. He knew what was going on. He'd been there at least 18 times, but this time everything was different. Right? On this time, he's ready to clean house. At this time, he had already been uh, baptized. He had already performed his first miracle. He was now ready for his first formal confrontation with sin with the nation of Israel. And not only that, but consider the fact in just three short years, at this same feast, he would be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. In just three short years' time, Jesus would, would be sacrificed, right? He would be crucified. And he would be the only lamb, by the way, who was ever resurrected. Be the only lamb who's, who was ever came back to life. After they slaughtered him on the cross, he came back to life to prove he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as we consider the timing of this cleansing of the temple, I just wanted you to take all that into, into perspective. And then I want you to think about, how about you in your own life this morning? You could, have, you could have been in church for a long time and still need your temple cleansed. You could be here week after week, year after year. You could have already been baptized and still getting bogged down with the distractions of this world. It is possible. You could be here this morning and you are a religious person, but you don't know Christ. And this morning, this message is for you. It's time to clean house of anything and everything that would distract you from knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only his blood that was shed. It's only his sacrifice that that matters this morning. And so this morning, as you look at that, continue to keep that in mind. Maybe God wants to do a special cleansing work in your marriage. Maybe God wants to do a special cleansing work in the relationship you have with your mom or your dad. Maybe you're here and you need some cleansing in the own purity of your heart. Maybe you're here and you're harboring some type of sin that nobody knows except you and the Lord, and it's time for your temple to be cleansed today. Maybe you're here and you're living two-faced, one way at church and another way during the week. You're hiding things from God, so you think. And I'm here to call you this morning to say maybe it's time for you to have your temple cleansed. And the second heading I want to bring to your attention this morning is that we all have a need, right? The need for cleansing. I want you to look at, and your next blank says, what the temple had become. What the temple had become. Here in verse 14, the temple he found, uh, excuse me, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and, and the money changers sitting there. Okay, so what, what did the temple become? It had become a marketplace. It had become a farm. It had become a zoo. There's animals and stench and hay and little ropes where they would carry their animals around everywhere. And this is in the temple. It's not like they couldn't have done this somewhere else. The whole purpose for this, by the way, would be as the Passover would happen, as Israelites from age 12 and up would come from all over the country, as well as from all over the Middle East area, that you were supposed to come and sacrifice a lamb. And so if you didn't have a lamb, or if you couldn't bring a lamb across, across the long journey you're going to make, you could buy a lamb in Jerusalem. But it had to be a spotless lamb, a special lamb. And so they're there selling lambs. And if you couldn't afford a lamb, they had other animals that you could sacrifice of lesser worth, but would still have the same value in the eyes of God. And so you could buy the lamb there. They have these birds there. You could do your business there. But the question would be, why do you got to do it in the temple? I mean, don't they have farms all over Jerusalem? Don't they have farms out in the countryside? Why did all of a sudden, just outside the the temple itself, on the temple mount, why does all this have to take place right there? And the answer is it was convenient. It was convenient for the nation of Israel to say, let's get in as close as we can and let's sell our stuff here. So this became a market. People are making a buck after selling these lambs and they start to exploit and take advantage of their own kind. Jews taking advantage of Jews. And not only did you have to buy a lamb to sacrifice, you had to bring a special, a special temple tax. And that had to be of special silver, either, either minted in a Jewish mint or a Tyranian uh, coin uh, because it had a higher uh, purification of silver. And some commentators are estimating that your average transaction, that the, 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 the sellers of the temple tax were taking 12 to 13 percent. So in other words, you couldn't just come with your own coin. You had to have one of these special coins. And every time they gave you one of those, you had to pay, you know, 13% more than it actually cost. And so what's happening again is this is a place of commerce instead of a place of consecration as unto the Lord. 
Now, Jesus walks in as this is happening. And you have to pause right here and just know that in the Gospels, there are actually two accounts of the cleansing of the temple. There's this one in John, and then there's the one in all the synoptics. The one in all the synoptics happens at the end of Christ's ministry. And so the argument could be made that there was only one cleansing. John just puts it in the beginning. The synoptics put it at the end. I don't believe that. I think there were two cleansings, and it's kind of a detailed study of comparing and contrasting each one and following the flow and the purpose of John and the flow and the purpose of the synoptics. But, uh, but I believe there were two separate cleansings. We're reading about the first one now. After three years, there's a second cleansing, which basically ends in Jesus ending up being crucified just shortly after that. And so I think that's what's going on. But in the synoptic accounts of that second cleansing, we see more a verbiage about the state of the temple. For example, that's when we hear Jesus say in Matthew 21, 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So Jesus is obviously confronting and accusing these, these priests and these Levites, and these sellers of lambs, and said, you guys are a bunch of robbers. You're robbing from God. So the temple had become, instead of a place, again, of prayer, it had become a den for thieves and for robbers. It's in, it's in that account that Mark also states that, uh, that, that, he, that, that it was supposed to be, the temple was supposed to be a, a special place where people would, would enter in, but Jesus drove them out who sold those who bought and sold in the temple. And it says, and uh, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So we're talking about what did the temple become? A den of robbers. What else did it become? A thoroughfare. People were just traveling across the temple, the temple mount being a fairly large area. And so people are traveling back and forth, taking a shortcut across the house of God. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Not only are you not going to buy and sell anymore in the temple, Not only are you not going to traverse back and forth, but here's what we're going to do. And then he talks about, the next blank there says, what the temple should have been. So we're seeing what the temple had become, but this is what it should have been. It should have been a place of worship. Jesus wants to reestablish appropriate worship in the temple. Psalm 138.2 says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all your name and your word. That's what should have been happening in the temple, the exaltation of God and his word for prayer, right? It should have been a place of giving an honest offering because that's true in Exodus 30, verses 13 and 14. They were to give an offering. I'm not saying they shouldn't have given money to God. It's just they shouldn't have been exploited and then give the rest of that to the Lord, right? So there is the idea that the temple was a place to come and bring their tithes and to bring their offerings. It should have been a place of prayer, how Mark 11:17 says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? What is that? hinting at, there should have been evangelism, right? It should have been a house of prayer for all nations. That that other countries, other people of other ethnicities should have come to the temple piqued by their curiosity of its beauty and of its extreme uh, central focus and said, what's going on here? And they should have been saying, hey, come on into the court of Gentiles and we'll show you how to worship the true and living God. Come on into the court of Gentiles and we'll talk to you about how God's going to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for sinners like you. Unless you repent, you can't be saved. But any Gentile who would have come to Jerusalem during this crazy time of feast where some people would say there could have been as many as two million people there would have just seen a lot of chaos and they would have seen a lot of buying and selling and a lot of external focus. Nobody seemed to be repentant with hearts of worship. It had gotten completely distracted. And so there's a great need for this temple to be cleansed. I remember my first year in college when I was... um, living um, at home with my folks, walking with the Lord, but having uh, probably a few challenges here and there, as we all do in college, right? I had a uh, chemistry lab partner, and I remember I was with this uh, partner for the whole semester, and at the end of the semester, I finally garnered up enough courage to invite this girl, my lab partner, to a Bible study. And I had been just simply inviting her to come. And she looked at me, and when I invited her, she said, you're a Christian? And I said, well, yeah, what, what makes you think I'm not a Christian? And she's like, well, I've known you now for the whole semester. I didn't know you were a Christian. And it just really convicted my heart that, you know what? Somehow I had strayed enough probably with my words 
and with my actions that this person had no idea I was a believer. And I'm just saying all that to say that the Jews had strayed. They had strayed so far from being a witness for God that people would have looked at them and said, we don't see Yahweh. We don't see a covenant redeeming God. We don't see salvation. We just see an external system. It's time for the temple to be cleansed. Maybe you're here today and people see your life and they don't see the temple, right? I mean, we, we know that you are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3, that the church is a temple in the sense of altogether we're the temple. When people see you, when people see our church, do they see all the busy stuff we've got going on? We've got all kind of conferences and Bible studies and this small group and this thing and all that's great. But if it's not being done out of worship for God, what does it matter? We're here to worship the living God. And so Jesus comes in in that setting because that temple had a great need for cleansing. And all I'm saying is you might have a great need for cleansing in the same way. And that leads us to our third heading, the method of the cleansing. Notice in verse 15 how it is that Jesus cleansed the temple. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Well, that may sound a little roughhouse to you, but you know what? Your next blank says this action is loving and appropriate. This action is loving and appropriate. Isn't it Hebrews 12, 5 that says... My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he, what? He loves. He disciplines the son that he loves. And so for Jesus to come in here and to begin to clean house with this method of aggression was not wrong. Obviously, Jesus never sinned. He's not having some fit of rage. He's having holy wrath against unrepentant sinners who had made the house of God a den of robbers. And the fact is, is that he took the time to make the whip. You know, some people say he just came in there and started kicking everything down. Well, he made a whip. That could have taken a little bit of time. Some people emphasize the patience that he had. He might have just kind of been picking up, you know, strands of rope and twine and that were already there from all the animals and just started making a whip. And I'm, I'm starting to kind of, you know, get an idea of like, what does it mean he drove them out? Nowhere does it say he whipped them. Some people will say, well, that was wrong. Jesus went there and he just started thrashing everybody with a whip. That's not what the text says. It just says he made a whip and then he drove him out. Now, he might have cracked the whip a few times like Indiana Jones or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what exactly looked like. I'm just saying the text never says that he actually whipped somebody, right? It says he drove them out, meaning he always showed love. He always did the right thing. He was never out of control. He never abused somebody. He was simply cleaning house. And sometimes cleaning house takes some strength. In fact, the next blank would say this. This action shows us a side of Christ's character, which is usually ignored. Excuse me. You know, usually when we think about Jesus, we think about, oh, he's so loving and so patient. He's the meek and the mild Savior. He was so sweet and just listened. Well, that's true. There's times that that's what Christ did, and we can learn from that. But there's times when he made a whip, with, with his cords, and he drove these money changers out. He drove them all out. The emphasis there is on every man, every beast, everything that's in that temple, he cleans house. And there's a time when righteous indignation ought to take over where you and I would do the same. Not that we would ever abuse somebody, not that we would ever be inappropriate, but there's a time to be loving and yet strong. I mean, it was Jesus who preached on hell more than anybody else in the New Testament 11 times. It was Jesus who talked about how he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but he came to bring a sword, talking about making a division between believers and unbelievers. It was Jesus who is the avenger of all who sin against him. In Revelation 19, that I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We're talking about Christ at the second coming on a white horse where he's coming to make war. His, his, his robe was dipped in blood. I mean, there's a strength and a zeal to Christ's action here. In fact, 
Just this week, we're reading some of us, the men here, through Mark Jones' book, Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. It's a sequel to Knowing God, J.I. Packer's classic. And in Knowing Christ, he talks about in this chapter, I think it was chapter 23, he talks about the wrath of Christ. And he talks about in that chapter how we always talk about the love of Christ and the patience of Christ and the meekness of Christ. But Christ also had wrath. And we see it in this text. And here's the quote from that book. He says this, Mark Jones, the author says this, quote, knowing Christ would be idolatry if the element of his wrath and judgment were removed from his person and work. In other words, if you're serving a Christ who does not judge and is serving a Christ who does not have wrath, you're not serving Christ. You don't know the Christ of the Bible. You can't make Jesus into your own making, which is what our culture does. Our culture claims God and claims Christianity and claims Christ, and yet they just pick and choose the parts of Christ they like. And parts like this they just ignore. The fact that he taught on hell, the fact that he called the Pharisees hypocrites, the fact that he is coming again with his robe dipped in blood. The author goes on to say, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, needs a companion entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Christ. And when you think about the holiness of Christ, in fact, we could say one more thing on this, your next blank, this action prefigures the events of the second coming. This action of Jesus cleansing the temple prefigures the events of the second coming. I've already read one of those passages to you in Revelation 19. You'll have to look at these other ones on your own, but Malachi 3 and Zechariah 14, which are given for you in your notes, talk about how in the millennial kingdom, he will also clean house. In the millennial time, there's another cleansing that Jesus will do according to those prophecies. And so this is kind of like a first installment of Jesus cleansing house like he'll do again in the future. Our fourth heading this morning, let's move on to our fourth point, the purpose of the cleansing. The purpose of the cleansing in verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so we could maybe just say this from verse 16, your next blank, to take away the things that distract worship. Well, why is Jesus doing this? What's the purpose? It's to get rid of the stuff that distracts us in worship. And one of the biggest things that's distracting these Jews at this time was money, right? Remember, it's a place of commerce. It's they're trying to make a buck. They've been accused of being a den of robbers, stealing money. And so Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so now the real idolatry is being seen here, the Israelites wanted money. They'd rather make money off of using the temple as a marketplace than to clean the temple and have it be a place of holy reverence for Almighty God. And so they're being distracted by their business. They're being distracted by their stuff that's in the temple. And what it should have been is a place, your next blank, it should have been to bring the things which foster worship. What should have been in the temple was not the things that distract us from worship, but the things that foster worship. The idea of just just the Word of God, prayer, singing songs, being cleansed through even their ceremonial washing would have been appropriate if it was done symbolically of the true cleanser, who would be Christ. And so they should have been doing things that would foster worship. Instead, they were doing things in the temple that distracted their worship. And maybe the same could be said of you. We're so distracted by our businesses and our hobbies and our days and our schedules that we get so distracted that even when we come in here, it's hard for us to clear our head to worship God. It's hard for us. We're so distracted. And we ought to be filling our heads, hopefully, with the Word of God and with prayer and thoughts of Christ being our founder and our perfecter and our joy and our sacrifice. He's our sovereign king. And the fifth heading I want to say out of verse 17 is this, the cause of the cleansing the cause of the cleansing of verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want to talk about that word zeal for a moment. First of all, we see the zeal of Christ. Your next blank, the zeal of Christ. The disciples were simply remembering Psalm 69.9, which where David wrote a psalm about how everybody was approaching him and oppressing him, and he got passionate about, about the house of God. And in this text, we see Jesus doing the same thing. He's becoming zealous about the cleansing 
of the house of God. Let me show you two other places where that word zeal is used in the New Testament. One of them, your next blank, the zeal of repentance. The zeal of repentance. That's in the classic passage uh, of the doctrine of repentance in 2 Corinthians. You could say chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. But in verse 11, it zeroes in on that genuine repentance is marked by zeal. Just like Christ had zeal to cleanse the temple, you ought to have the same zeal in your heart to put off sinful habits, to confess sin before God and others, and to replace them, that those things with holy habits and with a Godward view. That same zeal must be necessary in our repentance. Another place where that word zeal is used is the zeal of accountability. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about how the believers in Corinth, in that second letter, when the Corinthian church was doing a little better, they're actually being commended, and they're saying it's because of their zeal that it had stirred up, and their church began to stir up zeal in other churches. And he boasts about them to the Macedonians and to those in Achaia because of the zeal. And so what I'm saying is zeal for God provides accountability from one person to another, from one church to another, that people can hear about our church and say, that church is on fire. They've got a zeal for God. Or maybe there's certain people in your life and you're like, I like hanging out with that guy. He's on fire. Every time we're together, he's telling me about the word of God and telling me what God's doing in his business or in his marriage or in his home. You, you might be here and you're a young mom. And you're like, I love hanging out with that mom because she tells me about how she teaches her kids about God. And that's what I want to hear because I want to raise my kids to look to Christ and to love Christ. And every time I'm with that mom, she's just talking about it. We got to have a kind of zeal like that for the things of the Lord. And so as we consider this message this morning, maybe we could take home these three thoughts, all right? Three questions in the take home. Number one, have you been tampering with holy things? Have you been tampering with holy things? Big picture, the Israelites were tampering with the temple, taking that which was holy, and they had defiled the temple. You could be here today in this service, and you're taking the holy things of God, and you become to make them common. You begin to make them common. You begin to defile the things that should be dedicated to God as unto worship. And we get so distracted that we begin to buy and sell and use it as a thoroughfare instead of as an approach to the living God. We, we begin to desecrate ourselves and our church by getting focused on things outside of the central gospel and glory of Christ. Second question you could ask yourself is, have you been trying to serve two masters? Have you been trying to serve two masters? Now listen to me. Most, I, I don't know a single Christian who would ever say, I'm struggling between either serving God or money. I just don't, I, I don't know that I've ever had a Christian come up and tell me that honestly, all right? So the problem is, we just don't, we just don't see it like that, right? We would say, well, I would, never ser- I would never struggle between serving God or serving money. Oh, really? Well, let me ask you, how much, how much money did you give last year to the work of God at this church? If God were to look at your account, how, how much sacrifice and joy and regular discipline are you participating in in giving to God? I already know what you're thinking, but Adam, I got a mortgage. I got kids to put through school, and I got a car payment, and I'm still trying to buy my first house or condo. Okay, that, that's all fine and fair. But I'm asking you, are you robbing from God? You may not be doing it at church by doing commerce in this room. But my question to you is, if, if the real distraction of the Israelites, who were supposed to be religious people, was money, they made it clear they would rather make a buck than to worship a holy God, could that also at times be true of you? Could it, could it be true of you if you were to be really honest with yourself? Are you serving God or are you serving Money, And you can tell, real simple, just by looking at your giving records to this church or the missionaries you support or the ways you're generous with other people, very, very convicting thought for us to bring it back home to our own selves. I mean, I'm convicted of this. My wife and I sit around, we talk about budgets and we talk about money and we talk about what are we going to do with this and how are we going to accomplish this? And they're like, what are we doing? We got to give more to the Lord. I mean, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. And it's like, I got to give more to God. Why are we like this? Last question would be this. Have you been totally consumed with a zeal for God? Have you? You just kind of get excited occasionally or you 
Are you one of those people, you're like, I just don't get excited about much. I'm a pretty passive person. Well, I think that there's an example here of just like, we got to have zeal for God. You might share it in your own way, in your own personality, but there ought to be a holy zeal that consumes us for the holiness of God and for the beauty of His temple and for the glory of the gospel, that we would get serious about wanting to honor and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that zeal may be demonstrated not only by cleaning house today, but through continuing a lifestyle of repentance and a lifestyle of accountability and a lifestyle of giving and a lifestyle of realizing whether we're here together in this place or you're with your small group like we'll be with ours tonight or you're just having one-on-one discussions from one individual temple to another. Hopefully we're helping each other keep the temple clean. It's time to clean the house of God. How are you doing in that? And how will you accomplish that for God's glory, all by His mercy, but with great joy, I hope that you'll take these things to heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at such a familiar text of, of this story. We've, we've all read it maybe a hundred times, God. We, we know exactly what's going to happen about how Jesus cleansed the temple, kicked over the money, changing tables, drove everybody out. And we always seem to think that's for somebody else. For somebody else, we can all think of somebody who needs to hear that message, who needs to obey that principle. And yet this morning, God, I pray you would start with me. Pray that each one of us could say, God, show me what's in my heart. Show me what's in my temple. Show us, God, as an elder team, what's going on at this church with our finances and our, our, our leadership here. God, is there something that needs to be cleansed? And I pray that we would be willing to seriously look at this story and be like, you know what? We need to get serious this year, 2017, about about our hearts, about this church, about the glory of God in our lives so that we don't fall into that Jewish ritual of of just coming to the temple, making a, a few bucks here and there, using it as a thoroughfare, being distracted to where when people see that, they don't see a they don't see a reformation. They just see part of the, of the establishment that doesn't change. I pray, God, that you would do a reformation in the heart of each one of us here at this church, that you would bring us into line with the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love people, that we would be patient, but that we would be passionate about your work. This is your church, God. I pray that you would take it and build your kingdom here. We pray that if, if Christ were to come, we would just completely open up and watch, watch what he would do, and we would be both convicted and encouraged with seeing the areas that he would cleanse for his glory so that we could dedicate ourselves to the pure and unadulterated worship of our great God and King. And we pray this through Jesus Christ's name. Amen.